G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. When it comes to someone who's a deep thinker, just a fascinating fella to sit down with, and someone who just has such a refreshing outlook, it's hard to look past Bill Long. To summarise Bill's resume, he's a farmer based at Ardrossan on the York Peninsula in South Australia, while also operating his own consulting business. Alongside his wife Jeanette, they've built an incredible partnership that has seen them navigate the challenges of their own transition from Bill's father, and now going through handing the reins over to their son Will to lead the business into the next generation. In this chat, we cover Bill's love of family, farming, flying, fishing and fun. His involvement with various areas of the GRDC over quite a number of years. The importance of farming systems groups and the speed of adoption that he's been part of. Managing succession and his own experiences in this area. As well as just an incredible partnership that he and his wife Jeanette have built across many businesses over many years. You wear plenty of hats from the on-farm side and, and you've worn these hats for a considerable length of time. So in terms of today, if you bump into someone down at the pub and they say, what do you do, Bill? What do you say to them? <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm a farmer, uh, first and foremost. That's my primary driver. So I'm a farmer. Um, but I've spent my life working as a farm consultant uh, uh, professionally alongside of that. So they're the two things I do, essentially. And what is it that makes you passionate about farming? Being efficient, improving um, yields, improving productivity, being profitable in a really challenging um, industry and challenging environment. There's always something new uh, happening that we can we can have a look at and play with to to further improve our productivity. So I like that. It's always a challenge and you've always got this wild variation in seasons and conditions that make the implementation of a new idea or new technology challenging sometimes. So I guess I just enjoy a challenge of farming. Sometimes I don't enjoy the challenges of farming too early. It gets really frustrating and prolonged dry periods can be... um, you know, energy sapping and debilitating. But when you when you clean up and get it right, it's um I think it's one of the most satisfying careers you, anybody could possibly have. It's great fun. Euphoria. Do you reckon do you reckon your your love of it is as strong now as it has been throughout your career? Yeah, that's a good question too. Yeah, it's renewed. It's flagged at times. It honestly it has. I, but probably because I've been wearing those two hats as uh, you know, I'm, I've been been really lucky, Ollie, because uh, I have had the opportunity to work with some of the best farmers uh, who are willing to take some risks, who are in a better farm financial position to take them too. So I get to see that cutting edge technology being adopted and be part of that by helping them, by providing some advice and support and um, and help along the way. 
In the meantime, our farm, two or more recently, has been a, a smaller property. And so to be able to implement some of that new technology has been a bit more difficult. I probably wouldn't call myself a, a leading edge farmer or wouldn't have in the past because of probably cash flow as much as anything. But I'm early adopter and always have been in terms of uh, actually implementing what I talk about. And I'm always thinking about how I might generate enough cash to be able to try that new technology. To answer your question, yeah, I'm now probably more inspired than I have been uh, for a while. And that might be because I had a, had a son that's interested in farming and we've taken on some more farm challenges. We've bought some properties away from our home base, uh, bought and sold a couple of properties in the, in the last few years that I think is and I hope, I'm sure, has put a bit of surety into being able to farm into the next generation, which I think most farmers relate to and understand quite quite easily. And I'm really proud to say I've just had a little grandson. He's William number nine. So there's nine of us, you know, now, nine Williams in a row that have been farming in, or eight actually in Australia. One went back to England. So wow. Uh, so that's, yeah, that, that generational thing's just... Um, yeah, keeps you, keeps you motivated and gets you energised again. So it's a lovely thing. And so seeing William the Ninth coming through, were, were you that farm farm kid that was always interested in farming and being involved? Yeah, uh, another good question. Yeah, I have a relatively small property here. It's a beautiful property in, um, in South Australia, a place called Auburn, and that's, you know, the foot of the Clare Valley, and we have a beautiful small farm here. Uh, it was largely sheep. Um, and I can't say that, um, honestly, I spent most of my early childhood and growing up on the farm chasing sheep. I'm not sure I'm passionate about sheep. I love sitting on the tractor and planting a crop. Back then it was an old double five four international, so no cab on it. And we went round, round, round. So that's a long time ago now. Uh, that's the bit I loved. So, um, yeah, that, that inspired me. So yes, that's what I wanted to do. I knew that pretty early on. I explored some other possibilities in thinking. Might have been a fighter pilot if my eyes had been any good and my maths had been good enough to get through, but that was, no, nah, it was never going to be, mate. So- um, Well, you better spin that yarn. Well, what was that? Was that just a wild idea or you actually went and pursued it a little bit? No, I, did, I couldn't. I, I, I can't see out one eye. Uh, so, I, but I thought I might be able to do something. I've got to- yeah, what your passions? Passions are farming uh, and flying for sure. That's they're two of my five passions, I think. So, um, and so I've been able to fly myself around the country. I've got a beautiful Cessna aeroplane that I zip around in, and so I'm still able to achieve that. It's um, the one-eyed pilot. Yeah, it's a one-eyed pilot. That's it. <laughs> what age did you get your ticket at? Uh, a bit later, so when I was. Uh, Late twenties, like yeah, right. Yeah, and what you managed to weave that into the agronomy work? Yeah, actually, it's been uh, it's been a fabulous add-on to agronomy. Like if you are flying over the top of paddocks, you start to see all sorts of things that you don't see from the ground necessarily. You're observing, um, um, you know, soil type changes. Uh, you can start to see weed patches appear. You can see a whole a whole heap of stuff that. Um, you, you really don't get an appreciation from the ground. I've bought farms by flying over the top of them and saying that that one looks good, you know, and we deliberately did that because I've learned so much in, in um, you know, being in the air. So it's a very privileged position um, to be in, particularly as an agronomist, 
now there's drones around the place. People can sort of get a bit more of a bird's eye view of things. But um, gosh, I'd, I'd take my clients up in the plane after we'd had a look at these beautiful crops on the ground. They'd get up there and they'd sort of, they'd hop out and go, oh, oh. So it didn't look quite as good as I thought. <laughs> And there's, so there's inspiration to do something. So, yeah, well, there you go. There's, maybe we need to address a couple of those issues we saw from up there. Um, and you go out and you ground truth them and you find out what's what that variation might have been from and might be outside of your control. It might just be a soil-type-related thing you can't do anything about, perhaps. So, But nonetheless, yeah, I've managed to weave that in and, uh, you know, use it to go to field days, go to meetings. It, it means it's meant that, We've bought farms further afield that, you know, I've got farms an hour apart and six hours drive apart. So I'm able to cut that short and bring it back to an hour and 10 minutes in an aeroplane and can be over doing some work and back home for dinner if I want. You know, it doesn't usually happen that way, but I mean, you can get over there quickly and get back quickly. That's the thinking behind it that counts, maybe not necessarily the execution of a bill. So have you mentioned that you've, flown over farms and bought them have you have you uh, i'm going to say traded country in terms of being able to actually expand what it is you're doing or have you guys always been pretty tied to the country that you're running yeah uh yeah we've certainly we've expanded so um my wife jeanette grew up on a similar size property on the york peninsula and we were here in the mid-north we met at roseworthy we um worked professionally early on in our career and then took over the farming operations both of them in time, the uh, Drossen one, we based ourselves there and then later on um, took over the Warburton farming operation. But Ollie, uh, and was, it was still a struggle. We were still having to work professionally. You know, back then, those two farms had, had brought up families, but even combined, just with the pressures on production and cost of farming operations, uh, and keeping genera two generations going and ourselves, we didn't actually draw anything out of the farm for many years and still don't, <laughs> in fact. So we lived with off-farm income. Uh, when Will decided he wanted to go farming, it became pretty evident that, you know, we had to expand. Land prices were going crazy. We couldn't afford to buy and stay in it. So we looked further afield and um, that's what prompted our shift to Air Peninsula and it needed us to sell one of the farms to be able to do that, which was um, the Ardrossan farm, because that value had been had gone to a point we couldn't, just couldn't do anything more with it. So we made a tough decision, which was to uproot a, you know, generational, one of the generational farms. Fortunately, we were able to keep one as well, but um, shifted over there about five years ago, had a had a reasonable challenging run. We've since sold one of the farms we bought and bought another one to try and deal with some climate issues. Well, not climate issues, just uh, have too much of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we just bought a block in a high rainfall area, a good area, good address, but the worst house on the street kind of thing. Uh, have, have you guys always approached it in terms of let's make decisions and keep kind of the wheels running forward rather than hanging on for too long one of the things i enjoy doing is analyzing stuff pretty hard and i'd probably describe myself as a risk taker but at the same time there's a lot of thinking a lot of analysis behind that risk taking and again just because of my background as a farm consultant working with some really great people and my experience with 
uh, a couple of good programs like decision support systems that have trained me to analyze things, you know, farm systems well, things like yield profit, which is I've been involved in with the Birchip Cropping Group for years and helped develop. Um, and another program um, called Planned Profit, which is a farm financial thing. So I've been able to sort of knit some of that stuff together as well as combine that whole experience of working with growers, making making some sometimes I think risky decisions, sometimes I think, you know, well thought out decisions, sometimes decisions that aren't so well thought out that turn out okay, you know, so they don't necessarily a, a, a badly analysed rash decision can still turn out to be okay. But I've probably a bit conservative. I do the numbers pretty hard and think stuff through pretty hard. Um, and I like that high level thinking, but I'm still recognise the need to take a risk and have a go at something and observe some trends that are going on and do something a bit differently. You know, so for example, the shift to Air Peninsula was based on a strategy around growing more lentils because uh, our involvement in developing the lentil industry on York Peninsula, which had driven land values through the roof and productivity and profitability through the roof, wasn't happening to the same extent elsewhere. And, and so I was, look, we were looking all over the place, all over the country. And then for lots of reasons said, no, we want to, our values are around family farms. Uh, you know, we've got lots of connections locally. We didn't really want to shift interstate. And then I thought, well, Air Peninsula is a good spot. They're not growing a lot of lentils over there. Why don't we go over there and have a crack and see what we can do and see if we do the same thing? So it's, a, it's about strategizing. It's about thinking through uh, what it is you want to achieve, making some change happen. And if you make some change happen, um, you know, the result is might be an increase in land values or increase in productivity or whatever. So it's taking those calculated risks. You know, there's nothing new about that. It's just implementing them kind of elsewhere and and sometimes you've got to lead the charge to in a new district doing the same thing that happened somewhere else you know which is all we did so it's just thinking it through putting ourselves in that position and it turned out we bought the first time we bought was the same as the farm at Ardrossan uh, was slightly lower rainfall missed out didn't, not horribly but just didn't perform as well as it might in in the dry seasons and then we sort of realized we needed a bit more balance in terms of rainfall so we still got a medium to low rainfall farm which is really on fire this year fantastic and performs well in the wet years and the average years and um, and, a, and a wetter farm that gets too wet but yeah was well in the dry years so we needed that balance so we changed our strategy a bit i don't know we'll see where we land but i think just enough to keep you on your toes anyway <laughs> that's exciting isn't it it keeps me keeps me energized back to the first question what energizes me all that sort of stuff does and so you touched on like only very briefly in terms of this the off-farm role in terms of the agronomy but then also the farming business so did you pursue one earlier on in your career over the other um to get ahead yeah so uh, again having strategy thinking through what i wanted to do and what i wanted to achieve it was pretty clear to me early on, even growing up as a kid on the farm, I wanted to be, always wanted to be farming, but I needed to do something else. And I thought, I remember early on in my career after Roseworthy, back then, long time ago, a lot of the information came from uh, state government funded 
district agronomists back then, and they were the they were the gods. They stood on their soapboxes and and preached to the farming community about some of the technology changes. Some of, some of the district agronomists and hit me if having said that, but I I loved them a bit. You know, they, they, they were the gods, and I thought, wow, I want to be one of them. That'd be fantastic. You know, so uh, so I always had that passion and interest in communicating science messages, te technology messages to farming communities. Um, it, it's hand in glove stuff when you're farming, isn't it? Like you can, if you can do both, you, you're really lucky, you're really busy too. And I certainly was busy. So my intent was um, farming and then perhaps later on in life, develop into uh, you know, doing a bit of agronomy work. And I spent a little bit of time early on after <clears throat> after finishing Roseworthy with a fertiliser company, learning a bit about nutrition, then with a, a, a retail business, um, which was um, expanding rapidly. And at a time in the early 90s where we were moving away, not away, but the increase in the number of new products, new chemistry coming on, um, new farming systems being developed was phenomenal. The pace was, was incredible and it was it, I was hugely lucky to be in that spot at that time because it gave me the opportunity to step-by-step step learn about all these new chemistry, these new, this new stuff that prior to that we had, you know, 2,4-D and Treflan and, and that, was a bit, that was about it and a few others. <clears throat> you know, we're just starting to use glyphosate. We're just starting to use some herbicides now that are commonplace and we've stopped using them, develop resistance to them, all that sort of stuff. So grew up in that professional period where... You know, that learning was rapid, fierce and fast. And it was about the mid-90s, I thought, I recognised then that while I was kind of advising as a working in a retail sector, I really felt that I wasn't doing the best job I could with the farmers I was working with. Um, needed a more holistic approach, needed to think about the farming systems and implementation of stuff other than just, you know, <clears throat> chemistry and, and fertiliser. It's a whole farming system, so I moved into that that um, consulting role in, uh, when there were very few independent consultants, we formed a network of consultants across South Australia and Victoria. And that network still exists today, um, about 20 odd consultants, uh, which acted as a, a you know, peer support group. You know, we all got together and we all shared notes and got speakers in and helped us sort of understand the challenges ahead. And eventually, with some of that group, you know, we ended up, I ended up being involved in various research and or development sort of programs. And we learned even more. It was fabulous. It was just, just been a great journey. What was like the dynamic of the group in terms of did people need to pay like a membership to be part of it? Was it just to turn up if you want to? Or were people actually really kind of invested in the agronomy group? Yeah, no, we, so we all, we just, went out and said right we're fee for service so we just charge a fee to our clients and then no it was you know let's meet a couple of times a year and everybody was eager to do that because we all needed support it was a lonely space working on your own in a you know the generally one man or two man businesses um and so like everybody you just need a network of people you can bounce ideas off and and um you know just check your thinkings on track and you're not going out on a limb too much. So everybody wanted to be part of it, which was great. It was good. And it was a great bunch to be involved in. And look, I'd call it leading edge. It was really good. But I know other networks exist. You know, the retail sector's got the same thing and 
and farmers do the same thing. That's farming systems groups, the same thing. You know, it's about learning from each other, learning from our peers, being in a safe spot, being able to talk about something that we, with a group of people that we feel comfortable uh, talking to about. We don't feel intimidated by asking this stupid question. You know, we feel respected. We've and and that's how you learn. That's how you gather information. That's how you. That's how you. Um, develop your confidence in, a, in the stuff that's still a bit fuzzy, you know, and then we take the fuzzy stuff and we go out and we explore it a bit further with our client base and we have a go at stuff that's it's not clear cut and it's not got a certain outcome. It's, it's uncertain, but unless you take those risks, you kind of get left behind. And so, you know, the leading farmers we work with and, the, and these other guys that are working with the leading farmers, you know, you can make, create this community that just feeds off each other. And while it might compete a bit, um, generally that farm, farm businesses and consulting businesses are really generous with their info. Because if they're getting something back, they'll give something and, you know, the progress is really rapid. Did you ever find yourself getting conflicted between, you're like, oh, what hat am I wearing? And at this point in time, because you've got the agronomy and your consulting piece, but at the same time too, you're balancing your own farming business as well. So did it ever like exclude you from conversations or from areas because of that? Oh, I don't know. Conflict's not the right word, but do you know what I mean? With the yeah, I, yeah, two areas? Yeah, I think I had to remember which hat I had on at times. Um, I don't think it was conflict. <laughs> I think it actually added value, you know, because you were living it. Sometimes it did impact your decision making. If, as I said, you know, the Ardrossan farm was right on the edge of your peninsula. And so we'd have, you know, in the dry years, it, you'd just be desperate for that spring rain to finish the crop and the shallow soils there couldn't hold water. And I'd be working with growers further inland, not, you know, the rainfall would go up an inch a mile as you headed into the centre of York Peninsula. And so Rain had arrived just in time for those guys, and we and the crop had died off. So you, you had to battle your own demons, if you like, and go home, like remain upbeat when you're talking to the guys that had just jagged it just in time. And we're going to have a super profitable year because wheat prices were up or lentil prices were up because there wasn't much of it around. Whereas when you go back to your own, I won't call it misery, but your own disappointments. And so sometimes it, yeah, that. I probably wore a bit of too much baggage at times, um, you know, and had to deal with that. But generally, no, I think I'm, I was a better agronomist because of the fact I was farming. In fact, I'm sure of it. And for you, you touched a little bit on the farming groups and these kind of peer support networks. Now, and over your career, you've been involved in a few different farming groups and most recently you're the chair uh, of one. So what's the benefit like of that? And what, why are you actually involved in those farming groups? The farming systems groups have been going now for 40 years. Just last week, I was penning a few anecdotal stories to a previous CEO of the Birchip Cropping Group, just that was celebrating their 30 years of existence. And my first job out of uni, this is this got a while back, isn't it now, out of Roseworthy, was, was doing some work with Alan Mayfield, who ran the... Hartfield site for many years and did a brilliant job, led the way. He was a great, great operator. Um, you know, that was my first job involved in a farming systems group. And they've evolved since people came to Hart. 
have a look and see how that worked. And, and we had a, on York Peninsula, we formed a, the Alkaline Soils Group, which was designed to initially to help overcome a problem with snails, round snails and pointed snails that were causing considerable grief to growers during harvest when we were particularly when we we're growing peas as a break crop and these snails they couldn't separate they were gumming up headers they were gumming up augers it was that were making the sample undeliverable and unharvestable and we had to do something so and that led to a whole raft of other little research projects involved in disease management so we were running this consulting business we didn't have the answers that we needed we couldn't extract them out of books or you know, uh, the work wasn't being done and needed to be done and it needed to be done at a practical level. So, you know, we'd be out there spraying plots with fungicides to see if what combination of fungicides we could we could apply to deal with um, um, leaf rust in barley, to deal with stripe rust in wheat, to deal with uh, botrytis and, and uh, ascochyta in lentils that we were just learning how to grow back then as well. So there was bucket loads of stuff happening and we just had to go and do it so the farming systems groups have played a huge role enormous role in doing the applied research and and farmers flock to them when they're doing relevant stuff that they can take away and um, apply back at the farm and make some more money that's what it's about it's one of it's one of the few or one of the many avenues that farmers get hold of information but again based on that peer-to-peer -peer learning principle where, you know, we, we, we learn, listen to researchers, have an agronomist throw an opinion in and then hear from a few other farmers that have had a crack at doing this for the first time and do that in a safe learning space. That's when you, that's when you learn something. So the farming systems groups have been, uh, along with our own client groups, have been um, essential to progress the adoption of the technology. In fact, we led it in lots of ways rather than wait for the traditional, you know, research agencies like the universities to actually do something or for us, we've had to go and do that applied stuff ourselves. So it was a right combination evolving rapidly in that sort of 30 odd year career I've been involved in. And, and thankfully, you know, they've cemented their place in, in cropping systems in Australia to progress and advance cropping operations been really good and do you think there's there's more growth for them in terms of the relevance of them can actually really increase um uh, yeah look i think yes i think so i mean i think they the, the the major groups are well established and there've been a few groups that have come and gone because um unfortunately because they but lacked the skills and abilities to match the demands of the farming community to the funding bodies, right? So they couldn't write the applications because they didn't have enough resources to do that. So we, you know, there's a few that have fallen along the wayside, not because the demand's not there, but because resource isn't there to, to actually do that. So I don't think we've managed that well, um, all that well in some cases. Um, those groups that have done that are doing extremely well and just growing all the time. Um, and perhaps filling that void a bit through some satellite groups, but basically, you know, the school base is there within a region and we might support uh, smaller groups that want to do their own stuff, but do that funding application writing, um, um, training on how to run days and extension, you know, support those sort of smaller groups that just don't have that 
resource to be able to manage themselves, I guess, but just want to focus on a couple of specific issues. I'm pleased and proud to say I, they're here to stay for the you know, short to medium term, I reckon. They're, they're playing a great role. Well, I think there's no shortage of volatility anyway for, for them to come together and solve some problems. There's certainly always something that's popping up. All the time, all the time. You go through, you go through these periods again where you think, oh, what's new? You know, you know I've, spent, I've spent a long time going around selling the same story, telling the same story. It might be about a new technology, new, you know, you go through the new varieties. Uh, we're getting into no-till, we're getting into disease management, we're getting whatever. So, so you practice your craft because you have to tell the same story to, to 30 clients over and over again. By the end of it, you're pretty good. You know, you've rehearsed it and then you go through it. There's some years where I've started off that sort of run of um, the consulting round and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, what's, what's, gonna, what's new? You know, what can I take these guys? They're going to keep them motivated and interested. Something always pops up, always. Well, at least you're not approaching it, but feeling down and out in terms of, well, I just don't even know what else could be thrown at us this year. We've had everything, including the kitchen sink and a bathtub and container floating down <laughs> down the creek or that's something. It, that's <laughs> it. I mean, that's right. Maybe it's, it's just tempering it because uh, the season will change. It'll be different from last year anyway. So maybe it's the same message, just bottled up and differently to suit that season, you know. So. Yeah, I'm just looking at my playbook of the last 10 years. I think I'm going to pull out this well, one. Well, <laughs> you're playing a role that cope sometimes too. You know, you, you sometimes you're saying, yep, we need to go a bit harder doing the same thing or, hang on, we need to pull a you know, put on the brakes here, the season's it's not there. Let's just back off a bit and cut our inputs, you know. So that's been one of the exciting parts of being a consultant. You know, it's not just getting up there and telling. And what I learned over the years, it's, it's, um, it's actually about <clears throat> facilitating a discussion. You know, I'm only learning a bit from the previous guy I've gone and had a chat to and a couple of field days and conferences I've been to. I'm no smarter than anybody else. You just act as this as a facilitator and have this discussion and bring people together. And so more and more, the job became easier because you you didn't necessarily have to be the expert. You had to throw in a bit and top up some of the information. You didn't have to come to them with a heap of new stuff every year. It was about working out where people were and and having that conversation along the way. Yeah, just pulling in. Oh, I was chatting to Bill the, the other day and he was saying this and you just <laughs> become the, the messenger really, don't you? I, I want to ask because you've looked at, well, you've, you've writ, published quite a few different pieces um, over your career. I was looking at it in terms of, well, I, I'm going to ask you if there's a common thread, but some of the ones that I picked off were the various pieces you've published have ranged from people to bees to ryegrass control and cereals the logic behind irrational decisions. Like, was there a common thread or does does your research or has your research followed certain kind yeah. of curiosities of your own thinking? Bit of a shotgun kind of history there in terms of some of the papers you write. Some of it is very specific and technically driven. The thing, again, the thing I became passionate about and still have a passion about, still love it, is... Uh, drawn from the experiences I had as an advisor, sometimes you give some advice that you thought was really good and would, and you knew deep down, would make an enormous difference to a farming operation. And yet, and these guys were paying you for this information and yet they wouldn't implement it. And I thought, oh, I don't know, why would you bother paying me? Why would you do that if you're not going to apply this sort of, this sort of technology? And, and there were good reasons to struggle with that. 
for a while. I thought, well, you know, well, so I started thinking about the decision-making processes involved in, you know, that farmers were making and how they actually made decisions. And at the same time, I was working with the BCG, the yield profit team. We would develop, we developed this widget called yield profit, which most farmers around growing croppers around Australia now are well aware of. But back then, it was something pretty new. And the team I was working with were um, agronomists and research scientists out of CSIRO, and we, as a group, were struggling with the concept that we had this fantastic tool that would just change the world and make you so much money and more profit and yet people weren't adopting it we're going what what's going on so i began a research program it was a master's study which i never finished but i learned a lot along the way and produced a lot of the papers around decision making you know, the the irrationality of decisions that was one of the yeah that was one of the great fun things that kept me motivated throughout my career was actually starting to understand how farmers made decisions. We started exploring all sorts of stuff in there, like personality types and, and uh, values and decision-making and, you know, uh, biases in decision-making. And so, and I was able to then go back and kind of apply that to the decision processes we're using as well. And it helped me understand more clearly why people didn't do some of the stuff that we talked about, you know, if they'd had a, or, or did behave in, you know, aggressive sort of ways with aggressive, when I say aggressive, aggressive nitrogen applications when there was no rain, no soil moisture. And I thought, what are you doing? Don't, don't what did you put out that urea for? It's got not going to do anything. You've got no water. Or that did something last year, you know, which was a good year. So extreme recency bias were creeping into decision stuff. So that was really good. And so I enjoyed that part of my career. And I still apply that stuff today, even though I don't do the agronomy work anymore in thinking about and storytelling about, you know, to professional advisors, you know, like myself, about how they might connect with their client base, how they might connect with their farming systems group, how they might extend their information more effectively by understanding some of that decision bias, decision process, and they can craft an approach that is more effective because of a better understanding of you know, human decision-making process. So it's, um, I learned, first of all, I learned a lot about myself when I did that. And I think that was that journey of self-discovery in doing this decision stuff. That was probably the bit that made me sit back and go, mm, maybe I could do things a little differently too. Uh, and we were lucky enough to then, Jeanette, my wife, and I took, developed up a training program. And we, we spent five, six years, I think, running a training program training 10 key uh, mid-level, sorry, mid-career experienced advisors on some of that decision-making extension, you know, communication stuff and took that right across the southern region of Australia, like South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales at the time and, and Jeanette's career has sort of blossomed since then doing similar stuff right across the country. So it's, um, you know, it was, it was a stepping stone and platform for, for her to do some more stuff. We still love talking about it. We still, you know, the pillow talk, when you've got two people working in that same space in that area, you know, we talk about it at the dinner table. We talk about it everywhere. The kids can tell me what personality types and you know, it's just fabulous, just consuming stuff. Um, it's fascinating, the the personality pieces. And you go, yeah, like I'm doing some stuff at the moment through a leadership program. And like the big learning is actually, it's not, well, how's that in fact? 
how's it affecting them? It's like, actually, what have I done to make them think that way or react that way? Or how am I perceiving this? And that's this logic of, well, yeah, it's this piece in your head of you're always thinking about what am I doing? What am I doing? How's that impacting others? What can I change? Or like what actually needs addressing versus how much of it's kind of in the approach? We did. We had a, we had a great time, which we had we had so much fun doing it. It was a, right because it was with a bunch of peers who were all doing the same thing, all doing agronomy work, all out there chipping away, working with their clients. Um, but we developed that program over time, even to the point, Ollie, where I remember a trip to the West, we took with 10, 10 agronomists and we were over catching up with a fellow by the name of Pete Newman, who's extremely well known throughout the cropping region for his uh, brilliant communication style and ability to get a message across. So we were over to seeing lots of stuff. At that time, we were out in the field. We caught up with a couple of agros, um, local agronomists there, who are still practicing today. And we were having a look at an emerging problem with radish resistance to a, a range of herbicides. To a uh, show us a trial site, have a look at some resistant weed problems, and out at Geraldton. And I heard Pete had written a song to the a parody to the tune, not to it, to the to an Elton John song about um, ryegrass seed or something blowing in the wind. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can do something like that because I strum guitar a bit. Anyway, Pete was, we were on a bus and we were heading out to have a look at his trial site and Pete was talking to the group and I had my head down on a table napkin was all I could find and I was writing a little parody thing about to a goitia, you know, somebody I used to know about wild radish. And I thought, I wonder if I can, you know, do this in the pub tonight. We were having tea. Anyway, I showed this thing to Pete and I said, Pete, do you reckon we can do this as a goitier, somebody I used to know song? And he laughed. He said, yeah, I reckon we could have a crack at that. So he found two guitars. We practised it three times on the footpath outside the Jordan pub. We were having tea at that night and then went and played it to this expecting pub goers <laughs> at dinner. Anyway, so that was, a, that was a bit about having some fun and doing something different in that sort of extension space, communication space. I've just found it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, there you go. And then we'll later put it to a to a yeah. Anyway, so I can't wait to watch it when we jump off this call. <laughs> I've got a, well, a couple of questions. I think I think we've touched on a few different areas, but one part which we haven't really talked about is, and it's a huge part of farming in Australia, and this is the partnership piece. And I think you and Jeanette have certainly done it in your consulting business, but also in the um, family business as well. How have you guys created a successful partnership while being a, a family as well? Family business and a family. It comes down to, I think it comes down to a couple of things. Shared values, you know, our, our upbringings were almost identical. Didn't know each other. You know, I grew up on a farm at Umdalia, Auburn in the mid-north. Jeanette grew up on a farm, similar size properties. Met at Roseworthy, but, you know, our parents milked cows, fed pigs, grew a bit of crop, ran some sheep. You know, so, so those basic values are instilled on in early years, came together with a passion in agriculture. I guess, you know, sometimes the chemistry's right, things just work and, and we had, but I'd say the other thing was having clear direction, having goals, having aspirational goals, talking about them. Jeanette and I used to work, walk along the beach after, uh, during summer holidays. And we do our yearly plan on the beach, you know. At, you know, so that's what we want to do. 
and then we sort of talk about it and then we started kind of writing it down and then going back and revisiting it and so it sort of taught us what a strategic plan was about and now the work I do having worked with farmers focusing on their production plans etc but you know and the work I do now is working with farm on farm boards you know developing up strategic plans having the vision being clear about what it is you want to achieve and working out how you're going to get there right and if you don't write it down if you don't set those goals and agree on them then you'll just drift you know you wander along you'll you'll you might achieve some of it luck will go your way but I've always always had a focus I've always known where I wanted to be always known what life might look like in five years I keep saying what will life look like in five years where will we be in five years where will we be and so both came together on that we've been very clear about what it is we've wanted to achieve and by when and and I guess that's you know while we've got where we are I wouldn't say it's that it's tremendously successful but we're happy we've set our goals we've set our targets and gone way past them really I've got to say you know I'd set them in five years we want to be doing that and you'd achieve it in two and you go all right well, what's next let's reset let's have another crack you know I can't say that I haven't been able to achieve anything I've really set my sights on except being an air force pilot because I didn't have one eye couldn't fix that yeah, I got the one that got away but I reckon you've, you've done it right otherwise yeah um great relationship sometimes tested when I've been on the um receiving end of a no sorry your application's been unsuccessful but uh, any anybody applying for funds would actually understand that comment I think the organization's fabulous has worked so well um, in this country in in channeling that grower investment into the into the right areas as a general rule 2010 I put in an application to join the panel the southern panel uh, there's I think 10 panelists and three regions north south and west so 30 panelists plus plus the GRDC staff that then work out ways to invest that 200 odd million dollars I don't know what it is now it was back then a year and um you know, at a regional level anyway. So we played a part in that. It's big organisation, the wheels turn slowly. One of the things I went in there to do, as everybody does when not, you know, everybody joins the panel because they've got something they want to achieve as a general rule. And mine was around, you know, better support of agronomists in their role that they play in pr providing information to growers uh, and farming systems groups in the role they play in providing information to growers. So, and also you know, developing that pathway to market, speeding up adoption process by making sure that the science that was being done, which is very good science, was hitting the, the road, hitting the paddock as quickly as possible. And the facts are that new technology probably takes 20 years to get, you know, close to full adoption. If you can speed that up five years, the impact on that is enormous. So um, that's really what we were trying to do and I'm proud to say that we I think I influenced the organization enough to change the way they thought about approaches to running programs at that farming systems level again to you know bring groups of farmers together to discuss stuff rather than do the old soapbox let's get 150 farmers along to this event preach to them and they'll all go home and do nothing you know I don't think that's an effective way to go and yet it was a it was a key measure for success and, 
and many groups and organisations are still guilty of saying, yep, we had 150 people at our field day and that's the best thing that can happen. It's only, that's only part of it. It's really, you know, unless they're doing something differently, that's might've had a bit of impact. You might've created a bit of awareness, but it's about what else do I need to do other than that to, to fast track? And there's lots you can do. So uh, yeah, um, so spent seven years, I think it was six and a half years on the panel of JDC. Enjoyed every minute of it. It was great. There's lots of really passionate people get there with a, an axe to grind. We had some tremendous debate, uh, tremendous discussion over issues. Hope I made a little bit of difference along the way. Yeah. Question, a personal one of interest. Like when do you know is the right time to walk away and step aside from these various committees yeah, and groups good, that you've joined? Good question, Ollie, uh, because I think people stay too long. I, I got away from... So the, the big part of my life, the consulting career, working with farmers as an agronomist, uh, I did for 23 years, I think. And the last three of them were, I still enjoy them, but the, the passion wasn't there anymore and I was getting grumpy. I was starting to say, haven't I heard this before? So I was starting to recognise that I needed to move on. And that's, you know, they say there's a seven-year itch, you know, seven-year cycles are you're doing something for seven years, you've probably mastered it and you need to go off and do something else. Well, I did it three times. Going, well, yeah, maybe maybe it is time I moved into something else. And I could see the next phase, which was, you know, that strategic goal setting, working with some, some farmers doing that uh, sort of work was probably next for me. But also that was about the same stage that uh, Will, my son William, the eighth, <laughs> William the eighth, decided to come home and... Uh, and I recognised too, again, working with a bunch of farmers for so long, the best farmers that I'd worked with had been making the decisions on that farm since they were at least you know, 30 or even a bit before then. And the other key factor of being a really good farmer was that dad was a great mentor and a great coach. And so when Will decided to come home, he went off and did his own thing for a while. But in his early 20s, I said, Righto, mate, if you want to be a farmer, I want you to be the best farmer you can be and I want you to be running the show by the time you're 30. It's 28 now. And so my role changed. I knew then I had to take my foot off the pedal doing all this other stuff, um, supporting in the rapid changes that we're making in buying farms, et cetera, to, to continue the succession of within our farm operation. We could have shut the show. So we could have said, we'll just don't worry about it, live far more comfortably perhaps than we do now. Um, but that would have been the end of the line for that farming generation for both families. So mm. it was important to me to move into that um, coach role for him, to be there supporting him to achieve what he needed to achieve. Um, we've And he stepped up to that challenge really well. He's doing a really great job. So two years, I get the sack, mate, I'm out, he's 30. Um, I don't know what I'll do, concentrate on my fishing. No, I won't. You move into different roles. So you move into... You know, he's now, he's now operations manager. So he was moving to that captain role. You know, I'll move from, you know, from a coach, probably just a sort of mentoring support. I'll still be there working on the farm, but I want him to be calling the shots. And we've been very clear about that. We had a handover dinner, Ollie. When I first went to Port Lincoln, before we started farming as a professional, working in the fertiliser business, I joined the Apex Club. Had a great time meeting lots of people, fell in love with their peninsula as a farming community. 
as I was all over, traveling all over the place, met lots of people. One of the things that Apex did well was have a handover dinner to the new committee every year. And so we'd go around to these handover dinners and have a great time. I'd probably have too much of a good time. The next day was a bit slow, but it was an important event because it meant that there was a transfer of who's the boss, who's running the show. And so um, just recently we had a new employee join us who's more akin to Will's age and they were mates before and they who's wanted to be a, a farm manager. Will wants to step up in that role of you know farm owner and operator and business manager that I probably do at the moment. But we had a handover dinner, you know, basically, mates, here's your, here's the keys. You know, you, I know 30 is the sort of official date, but it was a milestone sort of thing to do to say, look, I'm ready for you to step up, take on that operations manager role. I'll step back a bit. I won't be here uh, for you every day. And that's the beauty about living six hour drive or an hour and a half flight away on another farm is that I can let him, I can leave him to his own devices and he's got to make some decisions. I'm just a phone call away, but I'm not there. And um, all the time I am there a fair bit. Just flying over. He's like, oh, that bloody fine. I wish he'd just bugger off. <laughs> but, I, but I do. I'm there for seeding and harvest and I'm there for support all the time. And I do all the crop inspection still, but they, and they do everything else. So I'd hardly drive a machine these days. They don't let me near them. They do. But, um, you know, it's, it's, that's the way it should be, I reckon. Um, or at least that, that's what we've said that we want to achieve, whether it's right or wrong. But, but it was through that life experience, working with those good farmers that I learned that handover early and step back and give them all the support you can. That's why you, that way you'll be successful. Don't hang on to the reins and stay there till you stay there till you're 80, but you're in a different role. You're not, you shouldn't be captain then not at all. Yeah, no, I reckon, oh, I think we could talk for hours on that. Maybe we'll have to, we'll have to park that part of the conversation and continue it. Um, Cause I, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful, but important conversation to actually have about, succession and and that's whether it's in a farming business if it's on committees whatever it is for kind of rural communities and rural businesses it's such an important part where people come in and give their all but actually knowing that you can't you can't keep your foot to the pedal the whole time you just burn out exactly so this morning you know we just did our election of chair for the erp committee you know and uh straight already i was elected chair that's fine that was good we sort of planned that but already the succession's in place, you know, and the vice chair that was elected, I said, well, mate, you, you're on next, you know. So I've got an exit strategy from day one. I don't want to be there longer than four years. If I can't achieve what I want to achieve in that time, um, I shouldn't be there. So I'll be stepping off in four years. I've got, I'm at the right stage of life to do that right now. I think I've got the energy to do it. And as I'm stepping away from the farm, I need to fill a bit of a gap. And that's probably what, you know, I think that'll be one that I can make a big contribution to and enjoy. So, yep, uh, set, your, set, your, set your goals, set your strategy, but have an exit strategy all the time. I just love how you like to keep yourself so busy, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I, do. Well, I do bad things if I've got idle hands, so I've got to keep myself busy. As long as you manage to keep your, your flying and your fishing in there as well. Um, while we're on the topic of Fs, though, we have a fast five, which we're asking everyone that comes on, and I'll, we'll be comparing yours and Jeanette's answers, but uh, <laughs> what's your favourite grain-based dish? Well, lentils. We've been involved in that lentil development game. And when I grew up, you didn't have lentil salads. That was, you know, that was for 
people living on the New South Wales coast or something. I'm not sure. You know, it was it was hippie food. There you go, I'll call it. So you just didn't do that. But then we started growing them. I remember having having um, meetings with growers and we'd be talking about lentils and I'd get these lentil salads and then you'd have a potato salad and have the lettuce and these guys that were lentil growers, you know, producing the damn things, hadn't even tasted them. And they tried and they go, oh, well, that's all right. But they go to the, they go to the potato salad. That's what you grow. So <laughs> I have to say lentils, even though that mightn't be quite the answer I should be giving. But anyway, lentils, there you go. Okay. Oh, we'll make it a, a lentil salad. Who would be three people that you'd invite around for the lentil salad? Match the passions. It'd be, it'd be uh, somebody I can talk agriculture and agronomy to that's not quite local. So, I didn't, you know, sometimes I forget that the, the best ideas come from people that are in an associated uh, business, but uh, doing something different to that that you're doing. So it might be ringing some of the and inviting a couple of scientists I might have worked with that are thinking differently about the same topics and having a good conversation with them. Uh, one would be, well, I'll not name the names, I'd have to think about that, but well, one would be a musician, so we could have some good uh, music. So somebody that's, you know, world-class. I'd love to have somebody like Mark Knopfler just turn up one night and say, Bill, you want to jam? You know, it'd be good. Going to happen? No. But anyway, there you go. And a third person would be, some, would be uh, somebody... Probably this as a psychologist of sorts, you know, so somebody to do the people stuff. So, you know, so there's a, there's a bit of agronomy, a bit of music, and a bit of discussion around um, around people and what they do and how they think. Maybe a uh, a Simon Sinek, the power of why, or or even a, a Ben Crow, a bit of the Mojo Crow. <laughs> Get that invite list out now. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll I'll send it out for you this afternoon. Um, but. I will also just raise, I'll, I'll be interested to see if Jeanette invites you to dinner, uh, given that you haven't invited her. So we'll... oh, now, I, I assume she was cooking the lentil. So uh, she'd be there. In in terms of what was your first ever job? Uh, pro- professionally, like working at the Hartfield Day site, I think painting signs for, for Mayfield to set up for a Hartfield Day site or something straight out of, out of Roseworthy. But that was a, just a casual sort of thing. But jobs were hard to find when I was out of uni they were or even before that I had a couple of years off probably my first real job was working on a station north of Port Augusta as a jackaroo whatever they called um, station hand and I remember I was paid uh, 90 bucks a week less less 12 dollars a week for a uh, carton of Southwark long necks back then I used to smoke as well and a tin of log cabin, cabin tobacco was five bucks a tin now, I think there was $20 board taken off. So my net take-home back then was, I don't know, about 50 bucks or something, which sounds miserable now. And even then was miserable money. It was terrible money. But anyway, we uh, we worked hard and, and maybe that's where I got a grounding for working six and a half days a week and long hours and not grizzling much. I've just learned to grizzle more these days. <laughs> or just to yourself. Just... <laughs> What's something you've got on your bucket list? I've been lucky enough to do everything I've wanted within reason. You know, I've travelled overseas. There's not masses of countries I want to go to. I've worked in the industry doing the jobs I want to do. I, you know, fly the aeroplane I want to fly. I'm farming um, in the farms and the regions I want to farm in. And, you know, I probably want to keep doing that and expanding that and supporting Will doing that. He's doing now. 
And my other passion was, you know, playing a bit of music. Bucket list is to uh, learn a bit more, get a bit more proficient at guitar playing. There you go. Uh, so my parodies are better. No, I won't be what I won't be writing any more agricultural parodies. No, I'd, be, I'd love for you to do something for us. <laughs> Just to, yeah, increase my uh, musical guitar playing proficiency. I think there's something on my bucket list I'd like to do. Oh, and William the Ninth might get you playing some modern day songs as well. So you just never know. <laughs> One other final question. We'll wrap it on this. Uh, and I'll be, I'm intrigued to see what you come up with for this, but what's a question you have for a future guest in this series? Had an opportunity to take a different pathway. What might it, what might it have been? Fantastic, Bill. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the GRDC in Conversations chat. It's been Thanks, fascinating. Ollie. been lovely talking to you. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.